But let's read from Romans 8, verses 28. It says this, And we know that those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he is also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Wow, I did it again. <laughs> Sorry about that. That was a little of that ventriloquism. Did you catch that? That was, that was a doll that, forget it. Let's start that all over again. Uh, we'll get this figured out. This is the wonderful thing about live stream services. Here's what I was trying to say. Uh, as we come to this time of our uh, teaching time, I want to encourage you not to be a passive listener. Do not engage in online worship the same way that you say watch TV or watch movies, where you're just passive and you sit back and you kind of just take it in. Let me really encourage you, as we saw in our series in Ecclesiastes, when we talked about how to honor God in public worship, be engaged in it. And here's the ways you're engaged, particularly, say, in the sermon time. I would really get, encourage you to get a Bible, have it open in front of you. Don't just follow the screen. Be looking down at the Bible. Be following exactly where we are going. Be praying in your heart as you go along. Lord, teach me this. Engage with what is going on. Don't just sit back and take it in like we do with TV. This is one of the unique challenges that we face right now with online worship. So let's really honor God in the way that we engage in our Sunday worship through our online mediums. Now, here's where we're going. Uh, as, uh, over the last few weeks, we've said that during this time of our global pandemic, we're doing a series through the second half of Romans chapter 8. And the reason really why I chose this passage of Scripture is that there is perhaps no better Scripture in all of the Bible on how to deal with hardship and how to deal with suffering than the second half of Romans chapter 8. And what we're going to see today is that the Bible, the message of Christianity, has the ability to give you strength and comfort in suffering that nothing in our modern secular culture can give you. It's very unique this way. You see, modern secular culture, on the one hand, is really great because unlike many Eastern religions, it says your suffering is real. Eastern religions often will say your suffering's an illusion. But modern secular culture says, no, no, your suffering is very real. What you're experiencing is not an illusion. That's a positive thing. But modern secular culture can give you no hope and no ultimate comfort because it also says there is no purpose to your suffering. Listen to Richard Dawkins. He's probably today's most famous atheist. He says this, there is at bottom no design that is in the universe. There is no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Now, here's why I actually love that quote, because in Dawkins' worldview, if there is no God, he is entirely right. If there is no God, then there can be no purpose to any of your suffering or any of your pain, because the universe could care less that you feel lonely. The universe does not care that you lost your job. The universe does not care that 312,000 people so far have died of the COVID-19 virus. So that's why I say modern secular culture is great on the one hand because it says your suffering is very, it's real, it's not an illusion, but not only does it give you no hope, it actually increases your pain because it says in your pain, there's no purpose. It just is what it is and you just got to deal with it the best that you can. But it's right here 
that the message of Christianity is so unique. It's right here that the message of Christianity shines in all of its glory because it shows us hope, it shows us comfort. And nowhere is this more clear than in our passage today. This is what the great purpose of Romans 8.28 says. Listen to these words. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So I'm going to ask you today, are you struggling? Have you got difficulties in your life? Then the Apostle Paul says, here is comfort for you. Here is the comfort which you need. And the comfort comes from reading this great promise and discovering that there is purpose to your pain. There is purpose within your suffering. God has a purpose for all of his children's pain. It's not meaningless. It's not purposeless. So in order that you and I might receive this comfort today, Here's what I want to do. I want to look at our passage really in three ways this morning. First of all, I want us to look at what the promise is not saying. Then secondly, I want to look at what the promise is saying, and then I really want to apply it to our hearts, and I want to wrestle together with how this promise works out in the everyday real struggles of life. So I'm going to start with kind of a bunch of teaching. All this teaching, though, is really important. It's kind of lay the foundation, because when you get this teaching, you get it correct it really can give you the ability to handle all hardship and suffering. All right, so let's get to this. If you want to receive the comfort that Romans 8.28 is meant to give you, then in the first place, we need to begin by talking about this. We need to talk about what the promise of Romans 8.28 is, this is the key word, not saying, not saying. And I really want to spend time on this because this promise is often misunderstood. And when it's misunderstood, what happens is people think it means one thing, and so then their expectations are here, but then that's a false comfort. Things get happen, and they realize, oh, I, I think this promise isn't true anymore. And so they're let down. This false comfort ends up betraying them in the end. So we got to make sure we know what is it actually saying. Then even more, here's another motive why we got to do this point. I've seen a lot of Christians misuse this verse in the way that they share it with other people, particularly other Christians. And often they have actually added to other people's pain because they've misinterpreted the verse and so caused other people greater difficulty and we don't want that to happen either. So what is Romans 8.28 not saying? First, Romans 8.28 is not saying that the bad things in your life are actually good things. It's not saying that the bad things in your life are actually good things. Paul is not saying, for instance, okay, guys, hang in there, and eventually you're going to see that COVID-19 was actually a good thing and not a bad thing. No. COVID-19 is a virus. It's wreaking havoc in our world. It's killed 312,000 people so far. This is not a good thing. Also, if you're ever talking to people, never ever use this verse to say to someone, for instance, who gets cancer, actually, you know what? Your cancer's actually a good thing because that's what this verse is saying. No, no, no. The Bible always calls a spade a spade. COVID-19 is a bad thing. Cancer is a bad thing. Death is a bad thing. We're going to see that the verse is going to teach us that God's going to take all the bad things and he's going to overrule them for our ultimate good, but we must never come under the mistaken idea that somehow this verse is saying to us that our bad things are actually good. That's not what it's saying. Second, 
Romans 8.28 is not saying that God works for the good of everyone. That's not what this verse is saying either. Notice carefully, it says that he's working for the good of those who love God and who've been called by him, called by God, according to his purpose of salvation. In other words, he's saying this is for Jesus' people, for God's children this promise holds true. That's not saying that God does not do good things for everyone in the world. He absolutely does. He gives everybody life. He gives everyone breath. He puts food on their table. These are good things that God does for everyone. But this verse is way bigger than that. It's way bigger than just the good food on your table. And what the verse is specifically saying is that for those who love God, every single thing in your life will ultimately work out for your good. So maybe you're just checking out Christianity today. We're glad that you've tuned in. Here is just one more reason to give your life to Jesus Christ, that this, tra- this promise could also apply to you, that you become one of God's children. You say, God, save me through Jesus Christ. Forgive my sins. When you do that, you become his child, and then this verse is directly given to you. Third, Romans 8.28 is not saying... If you love God, bad things won't happen to you. (laughs) That is not at all what it is saying. Sometimes when Christians, uh, something goes wrong in a Christian's life, they're going to think to themselves, why is this happening to me? I thought I was God's child. I mean, this shouldn't happen to me once I'm God's child, right? But there's a false idea under all that. And the false idea is that if you become a Christian, no bad things will happen to you again because now you're one of God's children. But listen, the Bible never promises that. This is why I'm saying we've got to get our expectations right. The Bible never promises that if you become a Christian, that you'll never have any more bad things happen to you in this lifetime. Not at all. It doesn't make that promise. In fact, look at Paul himself, the guy who wrote these exact words. His life actually got worse when he became a Christian in some ways. Got way better because he had fellowship with God and all these kind of good things. But Paul becomes a Christian, and what happens to him? Because of his faith in Jesus... He gets beaten, stoned, flogged, imprisoned. Eventually, he gets his head cut off. I mean, Paul's not saying in this verse, God's going to remove all the bad things. He knows that's not true. Oh, yes, one day when Jesus returns, God will remove all the bad things. That's very true. But in this lifetime, as we saw a few weeks ago, we live in this present time, and this present time is marked by suffering. And just because we become Christians doesn't mean that no more bad things are going to happen to us. Fourth, Romans 8.28 is not saying that if you love God, more good things will happen to you than bad things. So it's kind of following up on the last one, but here's where Christians say, okay, I get that last point. I know bad things are going to happen, but surely if I become God's child, now more good things are going to happen in my life than bad things. And so sometimes you hear Christians say something like, well, I lost my job, but God wants to prosper me, and so I think why I lost my job is he actually wants to give me a higher-paying job. He might, but that's not what this verse is promising. This verse is not promising that just because you become a Christian, that now you're going to have more good things happen in your life than bad things. One final thing we need to say. Romans 8.28 is not saying that you will always feel, you always feel like God is working things out for your good. 
This one's really important. Notice Paul does not begin verse 28 by saying, and we always feel deep inside that all things work together for good for those who love God. That's not what he says. What does he say? And we know. There's a big difference between and we feel and we know. Big difference between those things. When bad things happen, we often do not feel like this promise is true. If you're in a hard moment right now, you'd say, I don't feel like that's true at all. But true faith means reading God's word and beginning to reflect upon the promises God makes, the facts that God has given to us, and allowing those facts, allowing those truths, those promises to guide us and to guide the way even that we feel. We see this in Paul's life again, the very guy who wrote this. Paul doesn't go around saying, you know, when I'm in prison, I just feel so happy. I just feel so good when I'm getting, you know, stones thrown at me. He never says that. In fact, this is the way Paul talks. He says words like this. We are afflicted in every way, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. But what carried Paul through the bad things and the bad feelings and what will carry you is knowing what this promise actually says. So that's enough on what the promise is not saying. Very important that we get all of that clear. Let's turn now in the second place to talk about this. Let's talk about what the promise of Romans 8.28 is saying. So a bit more teaching here, and then we're going to really get into our hearts and really apply this to our lives. Let's dig into this promise, and let's just really look at every single word, every single phrase as it comes along. So notice, first of all, the word work. We know that for those who love God, all things work together. Just camp out on that word for a second. God is always, by his almighty and powerful hand, he is always at work. Now, where is God at work? Notice, God is always at work in what? In all things. He's at work in all things. Now, what, what does all things include? Well, it includes all things. <laughs> this is not complex. We don't need to dig into this Greek word and be like, actually, there's a nuance here. No. God is at work in all things. And all things means everything. And he's already brought up all kinds of these areas, all the ways we groan in our bodies, the ways we groan in our spirit. All the things that are difficult in life. He's going to go on to talk about tribulation, distress, persecution, and even death itself. So what he's saying then is that the almighty and powerful hand of God is at work in every single thing within his children's lives. Next question. Who is God always working for? We already kind of answered this, but let's just be really clear. Notice he's always at work for his people. God is not working all things out for good for everyone. Paul says he's working it out for those who love God, have a genuine love for God, not just admit he exists. They're truly believers. They love him. And it's those who've been called according to his purpose, his purpose of salvation. God has called you to himself. How do you know if God has called you? You've heard his call to believe in Jesus Christ. And you've come before him and said, Jesus, save me. That's how you know that you have been called. But now, all of that I just said comes to this one all-important question. This is the question we got to get to. It is simply this. What is God always working to achieve in all the parts of his children's lives? What is this end goal that he's working to achieve? The answer is God is trying to work, or God is not trying. God is working all things for good. That's the word right there, all things 
for good. But now here's the question. What is this good that Paul is referring to here? What does he mean by that? Is he promising that God's always going to work all your bad circumstances to become good ones? We already said no, that's not not what he's necessarily saying. Is God always working to make you more money? Is that the good that all things are aimed for? What is the good that God is using all of his almighty power to work every single thing in your life toward? Well, look at the verse. Does Paul define it right here? You've got to be looking at your Bible. Don't just follow me. What is the good that he defines for us? Well, in verse 28, he doesn't define it, does he? He just says he's working all things together for good. He doesn't define what the good is. Ah, but whenever you learn to read the Bible, you've got to notice the context. Look at the very next word, the beginning of verse 29. What that little word for means right there, that's a connecting word. For means that verses 28, uh, verse 29 and 30 are directly linked to verse 28. So in other words, what Paul is saying is, if you want to know what I mean by the good in verse 28, then you need to keep reading. For he goes on to define what this good actually is. And what is this good? It's that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Conformed to the image of his Son. So there you got it, all in one phrase. Predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now don't, I can hear you already. You're getting tripped up on this word, aren't you? We'll deal with that one more in two weeks. But don't get tripped up on it right now, okay? Don't get tripped up on predestination. Let's just, for right now, it just simply means something that is certain, something that is fixed. And what is it that is certain? What is it that is fixed? It is that God will most certainly work out every single thing in his children's lives in order for this end goal to be achieved, the end goal of conforming us to the image of his Son. That is the ultimate end for which God is working. That is the good. Now, let's, this is the time we do want to get into a Greek word because it makes it better for us. This word conformed. That word conformed is the Greek word morphe. Can you think of a word we might get out of that in English? To morph. What's another word for morph? Metamorphosis. We get the word metamorphosis from that. So a caterpillar goes into a cocoon and, a, and the process of a, a metamorphosis takes place and that caterpillar sheds its old body and emerges as a beautiful butterfly. That's the word here, morphe. It's the word. God is overruling all events in his children's lives to cause a metamorphosis within us. To, to cause a metamorphosis whereby all of our old, fallen, sinful nature falls away like the body of an old caterpillar and we emerge and we are turned and transformed into the beauty and the likeness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. What a glorious promise. I don't know about you. I need this metamorphosis. I need this so badly. I need my old sinful nature to undergo a transformation whereby that old nature is shed like the body of an old caterpillar. Things like just my own self-absorption, my impatience, my anger, all these things, I need all that to be shed. I need to be changed. I need to be transformed. I need a metamorphosis like, 
Like, so I can become exactly like Jesus, like Jesus in the desert where he has the ability to resist sin and temptation no matter what promises are made to him. I need that kind of metamorphosis. I need to be changed to be like Jesus. And oh, look at Jesus and what a beautiful man, what a, the character of this man. He is strong and yet he's gentle. He is filled with justice. He cares about justice and yet he's also merciful. He is always so honest in the way that he speaks, and yet he is so loving. Oh, I don't know about you, but I need that kind of metamorphosis. Oh, I don't know how, if, what your thoughts are on this, but when I reflect on this, I think to myself, what, I don't necessarily need just five tips to a better life. I don't need just three strategies on how to become a better person. What I need above all things is a metamorphosis. I need to be transformed. I need to be completely transformed from within so that my life starts to look a whole lot more like the life of Jesus. And praise God, Romans 8.28 declares that God is working all things out. Not just that your life would be a little bit better. (laughs) Not just a little better, no. Romans 8.28 is saying he is working all things out so that you and I will be completely transformed, that we would be set free from all of that old sinful nature and that we would emerge free in the beauty and the likeness of our Savior. Do you see what a contrast that is to anything that our modern secular culture can give? Our modern secular culture says to you that in your hardship and your suffering, there's no God, therefore there is no purpose to anything that you're going through. It just is what it is. You need to just be as positive as you can and get through it. That's no ultimate hope. That's not comfort. But listen, right here is where we see Christianity shining so brightly. For Romans 8.28 says that for the Christian, for those who love God, there's no such thing as any suffering or any hardship that is purposeless. There's no such thing as meaningless suffering at all. In fact, Romans 8.28 says that God is overruling all things, every single thing in his children's lives in order to achieve an ultimate end. And that ultimate end is that we would become exactly like our Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's what the promise is not saying. That's what the promise is saying. And now I want to really shift in the third place and drive this home, really apply this to our hearts. Here's the last thing I want to talk about. In the final place, let's talk about what the promise of Romans 8.28 looks like in the struggles of real life. What does this look like in the struggles of real life? And I think we really need to wrestle with this. And here's the reason why. Despite all this teaching, if you've received all this and if you're like, okay, I'm on board with this, I think there are still two serious questions that every single Christian asks at this point. And these questions are so serious that they begin to undermine our hope in the promise. They're like nagging secret doubts. And if we don't answer them, we'll never receive the comfort that this verse is intended to give us. So here's the first serious question, I think, that we bring up. How can all things be working for my good when many things are clearly working in the opposite direction? When you just look at your life, clearly some things are not working for your ultimate good. You just look at them. They're going the, the very opposite way. This is a big question I think that every Christian has. We hear that promise, but then we look at our circumstances and we say, no, nah, these circumstances are going in the opposite direction. How do we answer that? I want you to, th- to answer that. I want you to think about the gears on a watch. 
The gears, well, in a watch. When I was a kid, I grew up in the early, in the 80s, kind of early 90s, so yeah, I'm getting old now. But for those of you who are part of my generation, look, think back and see if you can remember, there was a particular kind of watch that every single kid wanted, every single kid wanted to have. Anybody remember? If you're Gen X, you can shout it out right now. Let's see if I can hear it coming through there. Yeah, it's called a Swatch Watch. A Swatch watch, Swiss-made watches, all kinds of fun colors, all kinds of crazy stuff to do with them. In fact, I was going through some things, and I, I had a couple of them, and I found one of my old Swatch watches, well used. Here's what I absolutely loved about most Swatch watches, and mine in particular. They often made the watch so that the front was not just clear, but you could see the gears inside of the watch. And then if you flipped it over, on the back they also made a clear backing so that you could look at the gears on the back of the watch. Now that's a little small, I know they're trying to zoom in a little for you, but here's just a picture for you of a typical looking Swatch watch. Uh, you can see all the gears. And so, don't tell my dad this, he might be listening, but I used to sit in church and I would look at the gears and just be fascinated by how they go around. But don't worry, dad, all that added up for the good of me giving this illustration. So I'd sit in class, I'd sit in church, and I would just look at, the, I just marvel at the gears and all these tiny gears and how that they are moving, how they're going in one direction. But what, what always kind of blew my mind was that one gear would be going one direction and it would engage another gear and it would make it go in the, it would, it would do the opposite. They would go in the opposite direction. So these gears are going against one another and then you add up, there's, I don't know, a couple dozen of these tiny little gears all precisely in there, all working against one another and yet all those gears that work against one another all are working together to tell perfect time like any good Swiss watch will do. That's what the gears on a watch do. Now, I tell you, I have absolutely no idea how that works. I never figured it out during all my dad's sermons as a child. Uh, I never figured it out sitting in class looking at it. There are, though, people, even one guy in our church, Chris Kane, shout out to Chris Kane, a watchmaker. There are watchmakers who understand how you can take two gears, make them go in opposite directions, and somehow all these gears working against one another can tell perfect time. This is what Romans 8.28 is saying. Romans 8.28 is saying that there is a great watchmaker over all the gears of your life. That there are gears which you can feel like, oh, hey, that gear's going in the right direction, I can see that. But there's other moments in your life you're like, that is going the complete opposite direction. There's no way that could be working out for my good. And yet Romans 8.28 is saying the great watchmaker is working all things together to achieve your ultimate good. Let me see if I can answer this in just a different way, but still answering the same question just to deal with, I can't see how this could possibly be true. I don't understand it at all. If you have a Bible, look down at the passage that Steve preached on last week and notice the, the, the contrast between how Romans 8.26 starts and how Romans 8.28 starts. Romans 8.26 begins with these words. We do not know what to pray for. In other words, Paul is saying, as Steve talked about last week, there are moments when we are groaning in ourselves. We are perplexed. We're like, I cannot understand anything about what is going on in my life. My life seems to be falling apart right now. I do not understand anything. So much so that even when you go to pray to God, you're like, I don't even know what to say to you right now. I'm just, I'm bewildered. I, I got nothing. I do not know what is going on. And yet in the midst of all that you do not know when you're in 
26. Go on to 28, for Paul begins Romans 8, 28 by saying, there is one thing we do know. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. So we're always living in 26 to 28. We're always living in, I do not understand this. I do not get this at all. But there's one thing that I do know. I do know that God, by his almighty power and hand, is working all things together for good for those who love him and who've been called according to his purpose. So I think that's the answer to the first question. Hopefully that deals with some of your your questions just about your experiences and circumstances. But even when we have covered that question, I think there is still an even more serious question. And it's the serious question of a nagging doubt. It's something we wrestle with so much so that if we do not answer this question, then you'll never receive the comfort that Romans 8.28 can give because this will always be there. be always a question undermining the promise in the back of your mind. We might say, okay, I've got everything up to this point. But at this point, we might say, there are things that happen that are not just bad. They're horrific and they're evil. So here's the question. Can we really say that the good of Romans 8.28 includes the truly evil and horrific things in life? I mean, does this include things like abuse, all forms of it? Does this actually include sin? I mean, sin is the great evil in the universe. Does this include death? Death is a terrible thing. Does this include COVID-19, a virus that's just wrecking everything in our entire world at this moment? Here's the answer to that. Firstly, remember what Romans 8.28 is not saying. It is not saying that any of those things like abuse or like death or like cancer, it's not saying those things are good. This is why I emphasize that. We've got to get this clear. Everywhere the Bible says those things are bad, they're evil. It calls a spade a spade. The promise is not saying they're good. The promise is saying God will take all those bad things and he will overrule them and he will work it all out for the good, the ultimate good of his people. So that's just the first little thing to say. Remember what it's not saying. But here I think is the best answer to give you. Imagine in your mind for a moment, what is that thing? If you're thinking, how could could God possibly work this all together for good? What about this? Whatever Whatever that question is, you're saying, what about? Whatever that is, picture that in your mind right now. Lock it in and bring it with you and begin to walk up a hill with me. Walk up a hill called Golgotha. Come up that hill to the cross of Jesus Christ and bring whatever that is, that wickedness, that horrific evil, whatever that is, bring it and just set it down at the foot of the cross and let's ponder this question now. Whatever that evil is, let's ponder it under the shadow of Golgotha. Because when we get to this great hill of Calvary, there, of all the places in history, we encounter what is the most horrific, evil act of all time. And I say that because of numerous reasons. First of all, because the murder, the torture and the murder of the Son of God is evil in every possible way imagined. This is the only truly innocent man who ever lived. But it's not just that he's innocent. It's who he is. It's always wrong to murder someone 
But even in our society, you know that to murder, for instance, a policeman or to assassinate a president is another level of evil because of the position that that person holds. It's murder, but it's even worse. How much worse is it then when creatures murder and crucify their creator, the very one who gives them life and breath and everything else? The torture and the murder of the incarnate Son of God is the most horrific act of evil in the history of the universe. That's what we're looking at. That's the question that we're asking at this moment. So how do we answer that? Ponder on this with me. Not one single person that witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus sat there and said, oh, I can see how God's working this all out for good. I can see there's a grand plan. The great watchmaker's taking all the gears and he's bringing it all together. I I can see how he's doing that. No, no one who stood in the shadow of the cross thought that. Of course, the soldiers didn't know it. They didn't think it at all. They're the ones who mocked him, belittled him as a fake king. They're the ones who nailed his hands and feet to the cross. The disciples certainly didn't think that. They thought that their great Messiah they put all their trust in had now failed them. Maybe he's not even the Messiah. And their courage fled them, and they fled from Christ. Peter denies even knowing Jesus at all. He's so distraught, he's out weeping bitterly. Judas hangs himself. The mother of Jesus just sits there and weeps before the foot of the cross. Even his own mother is not saying, oh, I can see how God would work some of this out for good. The evil human powers, the evil spiritual powers were having their moment, as Jesus said in Luke 22, this is your hour and the power of darkness. I'm saying all this to say this one point. If there is one place, if there is one act in the history of the world where you can make a case that God is not working all things out together for good, it's the cross of Jesus Christ. Everyone who stood beneath the shadow of that cross thought there was no good, there's no design, there's no plan, it's all chaos. And yet, there is no clearer place that you can go to see the truth of Romans 8, 28, than the cross of Calvary. For it is through the cross that God is working out his grand design. The cross is the center of his grand design. And what we cannot see when we're just standing there, if you were there in that moment of time, God is actually working everything. This is the linchpin. This is the core. This is the center of all things. For at the cross, Jesus disarms the principalities and the powers, all the evil spiritual powers. He takes our sins and he nails them to the cross. He bears in his body on the tree our sins so that anyone who comes to him can be forgiven and can be reconciled to God. What looked like there was no plan at all, no goodness at all, actually is the very center of God's ultimate plan for our good. Even when all seemed lost, God raised his son from the dead. And in that moment, God's new world was launched. And now God is working all things toward the complete and total salvation of his people. All things are moving to this moment when eventually his people will be with him. So whatever your thing is, whatever that thing you're saying, how could this possibly be part of that? Take it to the cross. If God can do that with the torture and the murder of his own son, surely He can do it with whatever you're thinking of at this moment. Let's put it in a different way. The other story you could go to would be the story of Joseph. 
Joseph, of course, is sold into or is thrown in a pit by his brothers. He's sold into slavery. He ends up in prison. But eventually, he becomes the second in command next to Pharaoh himself and ends up saving an entire, well, who knows how many people's lives because he's smart and he deals with a famine in a powerful way and God uses him. One of the great stories of really Romans 8.28 could be over that story. And when Joseph saw his brothers again, many years later, this is the words that he said to them. He said, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Here's my encouragement to you. Take the words of that verse, which are really a paraphrase of Romans 8.28 in many ways, and apply it to whatever's difficult in your life. Take those words. So speak it out to whatever troubles you're facing. So let's say cancer. Cancer, you are, you are destroying my body. You may even kill me, but cancer, you're actually making the hope of the resurrection body even more glorious to me. Cancer, you may kill me, but you will actually only give me my heart's true desire, which is to be with Christ. Cancer, you mean it for evil, but God is going to overrule it for good. Unemployment. You say, unemployment, you're causing a lot of stress in my life. You're causing a lot of anxiety in my life right now. Oh, but unemployment, right now all that anxiety and stress is putting me on my knees before God. I am learning more and more what it means to trust my God with every single thing, to trust he will supply all of my needs. I'm becoming more childlike in my faith. I am looking to his hand to provide. I'm learning to trust in my father even more. So unemployment, you meant it for evil? Oh, but God is overruling it all for my good. Even the worst things, say abuse, abuse. Oh, there's terrible things. Abuse, you have wounded me deeply. You have caused me tremendous suffering in the deepest part of who I am. But God is overruling even you. I'm learning about God's healing power in my life. And I'm hoping even more now in that resurrection body that Jesus will give me one day, that resurrection body that will be free of all trauma. All the trauma that I have in my body, I'll be free of it and I'll live in a world where all the wrongs are made right. Abuse, you mean evil to me, but God is overruling you for good. And how about sin? Oh yeah, sin. Even sin God is working this for. We can still speak to our sin and say, oh sin, you are definitely evil. You are only wanting to kill me. You care nothing at all for me. Oh, but even sin, I can starting to see now that all your great promises, I'm seeing through the lies. Even God is taking all of these experiences of my repentance and my failings and I'm starting to see more clearly that all of your promises are lies. I'm also beginning to discover that all those promises of good taste that you give me, They're not good taste at all. They're bitter. And I'm experiencing the bitterness of sin, which only then makes the grace of God taste all the more sweet. Sin, you mean evil to me, but I'm experiencing the grace and the love of Jesus Christ like the prodigal son in more ways than you could possibly imagine. You mean it for evil, but God is working it for good. And even finally, we can say this to COVID-19. I'm going to do a bit more on this next week. But COVID-19, you're wrecking our whole lives. You're causing so many problems in this world right now. And you're bringing death to people. But COVID-19, God's overruling even you. 
Even as people right now, as his people, we are now feeling more than ever grounded on the rock that is sure, for we are learning there's nothing secure in this world, that all these things can be taken, and so we are now pursuing Jesus more than we did before. We're praying more than we did before. We are now even craving the fellowship of other believers to worship together more. We took it for granted maybe before, but now we're saying, oh, I can't wait to be back together. We're praying more for unbelievers as we think of our mortality. We're thinking more about how we can make disciples in new and innovative ways. So, oh yes, COVID-19, you mean all of this for evil, but God is working it for good. So that's the great promise, friends. That's the great promise of Romans 8, 28. What comfort there is for us. Trials, And bad things will most certainly come our way. And when they come, we often say, I don't understand them. I cannot comprehend why this would happen. We say there is much we do not know. But then we move from chapter 8, verse 26, to verse 28. In all that we do not know, there is one thing that we do know. We know. Oh, we know that for those who love God, he's working all things together for our ultimate good. We see in this verse that God is working to achieve our complete and final salvation. When one day we will emerge from the cocoon of this life and we will be set free, we will be transformed forever into the beauty and the likeness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Find hope in this promise. Find comfort in this promise. Apply it to your heart, even when it doesn't feel like it is true. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, that you have spoken into our struggles and our hardship in life. We thank you for your great promises. They are so precious to us. And I want to pray for each one right now, wherever they are at, whatever they are going through, whatever those hard things are that come to mind, that this great promise would bring comfort. Spirit of God, that you would minister to each one in their own particular way, that we would find hope in what you are doing in our lives. Thank you, Father, that there is hope in this difficult world. There's no such thing as meaningless suffering. We're grateful for all that you are doing. Continue to work this promise out in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.